Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. I've been running for a few years now and have the privilege of meeting many incredible runners on my travels all across the country. This podcast is intended to share those amazing conversations. And welcome back. I am here with another remote interview here today with Teal Burrell. Burrell, sorry, I, I botched it already, and you just told me. Um, thanks so much for uh, for coming on today and and chatting. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. For sure. So let's kick it off. Uh, who is Teal? Um, yeah, so I am a mom to a about to be three year old. I am a runner. Um, the marathon being my favorite and far and away my best distance. And I am a um, predominantly a stay-at-home mom, but I'm also a freelance science writer on the side. So I write articles for magazines like Discover and stuff like that um, in my quote-unquote spare time. Um, yeah, that's me. Probably a bunch of other things, but <laughs> those are the big awesome. ones. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, we were connected because uh, you have a really interesting story that a handful of people wanted to hear more about. So you've gone from a 407 marathon to a 239 marathon. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the bigger jumps I've ever heard. Um, and I want to know, what, what was that like? What was that first marathon like? Uh, yeah, so the first marathon I was in college. I was a college sophomore. Um, I had run in high school. Um, track and cross country, um, eventually all three seasons. Um, but then I didn't think I was very good. I didn't think I was good enough to run in college. So I sort of just totally stopped running. And then in college, I was like, I really want to run, but I need a big reason to do it. Um, you know, just like staying in shape or like feeling good afterward wasn't enough to get me out of bed. So I was like, I'm going to do a marathon. Like, let's just do it. So, um, I did it my sophomore year, um, trained, semi-consistently, you know, did my long runs, tried to do as many other runs as I could. Um, and then, you know, it was just like all about finishing and whatever that looked like. So, yeah. Cool. How did it evolve from there? Um, so after that, I once again, just totally stopped running. Um, and then it wasn't until I graduated and I moved to Boston and was working in Boston uh, for a few years uh, that I decided I wanted to try and run another one and try to qualify for Boston. Um, which I think had been sort of in the back of my mind after I finished the first one, but was like, eh, we'll see about that later. And then when I moved to Boston, I was like, let's do it. And I thought it would take a lot of tries and I would have to, you know, it'd be like a couple years and be like a really long-term goal. But I ended up um, qualifying in my second marathon. Um, and yeah, that then was a, you had to run 335? Uh, those were in the 340 days. Um, but yeah, I ended up running a um, 328 and really just like, shocking myself that I ran that well. And I felt amazing at the end, like the last couple of miles, I was like, Oh my God, I'm doing this. And I feel great. Yeah. Um, and so then I was like, okay, I'm going to run Boston now. Cause I qualified. And I still sort of felt like that was going to be the end of this, like marathoning phase of my life. But as I was training for Boston, I was like, I want to keep doing this. Like, why not? So then I just decided to, um, keep going for it. Actually <laughs> after Boston was, um, so this was 2009 the spring of 2009, um, was when I kind of came up with this new goal that, um, I wanted to try to qualify for the Olympic trials because I realized like 
originally this goal of getting to Boston was going to be this long, you know, process and take a couple tries and keep <laughs> me running. And then it wasn't. So I was like, well, I need a bigger, crazier one. So I was like, let me try and qualify for the Olympic trials, which at that point, my PR was a 318. Um, so I'd already taken a lot of time off, but like I had a long way to go. Um, but I just thought that I, you know, it would keep me going and it, I would get better. And even if I never made it to the trials, like having some ridiculous goal like that would give me something to shoot for and would certainly help me to run faster and keep me in the sport. Um, so that's kind of when that dream started. And where were you living when you were in Boston? Um, I lived in Cambridge. So did you do a lot of your training on the course itself? Um, I did. So, yeah, I did a lot of the long runs on the course, um, especially like from the Newton Hills on sort of towards home, towards Cambridge where I lived. But I did like take the train out to like Framingham one day and run the last 20 miles. For one cool. Of mm-hmm. So um, a handful of people have talked about how Boston became their goal. That's what got them hooked. What was it about running Boston that that you loved that you wanted to um actually tell me about running boston what was that experience like oh gosh um it was just so exciting like the excitement of there's always so much excitement at a marathon like everybody's hyped to be there they've trained like it's a big deal but like boston is just like on another level because everyone's not only trained to get there like they trained just to qualify to get there right. so like some people have been at this for like years and years and you could right. just feel that on the starting line you could feel that the whole weekend when you're you know going to the expo to get your bib or whatever like it was just so exciting. And I, and I love that like the elites, this was when I sort of started getting into like watching the elite side of the sport. And like, I love that they were running, you know, in front of us and like sharing the same course that we were doing. And, um, up to that point, I just run smaller races. So there wasn't that sort of prestige. And I just like, I mean, just all the stories and all the like things on that course, like the Wellesley scream tunnel and the signs that, you know, people write and are shouting your name, like your bib or whatever the whole time. It was just like, so exciting on a whole nother level and um and living in boston um before that like i had never watched the marathon because i had to work on that day but um just like i could you could just still feel it around the city like the year before or whatever um and i lived right near a running store and they would always like put out all these like cool things like in the windows and stuff leading up to boston i was like man i want to get there um you could see the people wearing their jackets like there's just so much hype around it and i was like i want to be there and then when i got there i was like yeah, this was, this is it. it lived so, up to the hype. <laughs> yeah, totally. So uh, you ran that um, and then you refocused on uh, the trials. Yeah, That's- I mean, sort of. <laughs> it was a long off goal. So I knew that like, I didn't think I was going to like run, you know, I said my PR was 318. And back then I didn't even know like what the standard would be because it changes every four years. Um but I knew it'd be like 245-ish, let's say. And I didn't think I was going to run like 245-ish in my next race. I, so I just sort of gradually was like, okay, well, you know, I broke 320. Can I break 315? And then if I break 315, can I break 310? And then like, I just sort of kept going at like five minute increments and like, just tried to see like where that would take me. So what was, so instead of, instead of the big, uh, the big goal of running sub 245, you instead focused on, uh, those incremental gains, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I think a lot of people. I'm going to reference again the most referenced person on this podcast, Peter Bromka. Uh, the conversation I had with him prior to running Boston 2019 was, he said that people come to him all the time and say, "Hey, Peter, I want to break three, or I want to BQ, or I want to do this and do that." 
And he tries to reshift their focus to say, okay, but you're not going to do that this year. Mm -hmm. Do you have a two-year plan or a Mm five-year plan? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a very important piece that is probably, you know, a large part of why you've been successful in taking that time off because um, it's it's a little bit more manageable than, you know, a 30-minute PR, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, then, um, so this was, like I said, in 2009, and I sort of thought in the back of my mind, like, maybe I'd make it in 2012. And as 2012 got closer, I was like, okay, not 2012, like, it's going to be 2016. And like that, you know, that was a long way off then. But I just like knew that I, um, you know, if I had more time, I would be more likely to make it. And also, I think um, it wasn't just like not expecting to take 30 minutes off. It was also like, I just sort of slowly made changes to like, not just training, but also like nutritionally or like doing you know, strength or core work. Like I wasn't like, okay, this season I'm going to like change right. everything. It was right. like, well, if I just get a little bit better at this and a little bit better, like next season, it was very gradual. And I think that, um, helped me from just being overwhelmed and like totally, you know, burning yeah, trying to change everything all at once. Yeah. You can see which, which variables work and have, have an impact. So yeah. let's talk 2016 versus 2020. I spectated both races and uh-huh. saw a massive difference. Uh, what was it like running? Um, well, um, it was, I mean, obviously there was very, both races were very challenging in very different ways. Um, 2016 was super hot and 2020 was super hilly and windy. Um, and I thought that I am not a heat runner and I am a strength hill kind of person. So I thought like I would do better this time around. Um, both times I think I was equally disappointed with where I ended up, but, um, yeah, this, this time it was just like so wild. I mean, being there in 2016 was really exciting for me because, um, obviously like that had been my goal for so long to make it to the trials. And like, I was there and it was like such a celebration of my achievement being there. And like my family, I had so many family that are like, I can't even express how supportive they are. And they all came to LA and like, it was just such a celebration of like my achievement. Um, and 2020 was like very different. I got, um, like still I had family there that was celebrating my achievement, but it really felt the whole weekend through like a celebration of like everyone's achievement and like, running. especially yeah. at, yeah, run. And especially on the women's side. Um, I mean, obviously I can only like speak to that, but, um, it was just like, there were so many people cheering and there were so many events all weekend long and everyone was so hyped. And like this time as well, I was, um, you know, I'm on the Wazelle Hope Valet team and there was 24 of us there on the line. And then like, I don't know, hundreds of volet out cheering, like the Wazelle section was insane. And so it just felt like much more of community, like celebration for me, for me personally, than the yeah. first time around when it was like, I was kind of there by myself and like, just had my family. And this time it was like, off the wall, like yeah. I mean, I, craziness, I felt, the whole thing all weekend. I felt the same way. I felt like uh, LA was like, a, it was a race. It was cool. Yeah. Um, but it played second fiddle to, was it the Grammys or the Oscars that were, that were happening? Yeah, that week? I think the Grammys, I don't know. Yeah. It was in February. So yeah, I don't know. So whatever it was, it, it didn't feel like the main event because LA is the way it is, but Atlanta, I mean, I got there on Wednesday and I stayed at the Omni hotel, um, Wednesday night mm-hmm. and you couldn't like, it took 15 minutes to get from the elevators to the door. I Just know. like you see everyone that you know and it's like a homecoming and it's just like getting the chills thinking about it um yeah yeah and it was was crazy 
it's such a cool celebration of like you're saying running in general. Yeah. Um, so and conversation- so many more, it wasn't like, it wasn't just the, uh, you know, the elites, the people racing, like it was so much more about the community and everyone else yeah. cheering for us. Like, you know, whereas in LA, I felt like I was kind of like, I mean, LA was fun and it was hyped up, but it was kind of like I was making my own hype. And this time it was like, it's everywhere. Right. <laughs> Delivered for you. What were yeah. you thinking about on the starting line? Oh, what was I thinking about on the starting line? Uh, I wish this wind would stop. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Was I even thinking about the wind? Um, I don't know. I don't remember what I was thinking about on the starting line. Um, I was just excited to be there and excited to get started. And um, I remember there was some weird thing where they like said, okay, we have one minute. We have two minutes left. And then we're like, okay, we have one minute left. And I was like, wait, what? But like there wasn't any time there, but then it was some like misunderstanding. I don't know. Um, so I remember being like, wait, how much time? Really? Seriously? Are we about to go? Um, and then once we started, um, it was just like, it was the weirdest start ever because everybody's, there's like hundreds of women that are exactly the same. <laughs> right. Which is like not true at any other race. You know, you might have like 20 people and we had like 500. So then we're just like crawling along like, oh, okay, we're just going to jog for a mile in this mass of people. It was very Where'd you strange. run the first mile in? Um, it was like 620, but the, uh, leaders were like, I could see them. They ran like 613 yeah. or something. Um, wow. and my watch at points was like seven minutes. And I was like, are we really running seven minutes right now? This is- I saw people on Strava. It was like 27, 28 miles. So a lot oh, of building. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I think my first two miles were just totally off. So how do you break up a marathon? What, where do you go mentally? So for this one, I mean, I think it probably, I usually break it up. 10 miles, 10 miles, 10 K. Um, with this one, I obviously broke it up based on the loops, which were eight miles, eight miles, and then, um, 10.2. So I just kind of like had different goals for each loop. Um, yeah. Cool. What, what are you thinking about after the first 20? Uh, God, um, (laughs) get to the finish. (laughs) It's like counting down the miles to the finish and just trying to, um, you know, give everything I have at that point, which is like sometimes just putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Um, yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty spectacular day. Um, it was really cool. I think I saw you with a smile on your face every time you went by. Um, and it was just so cool to see just how happy everybody was. Yeah. Um, despite, despite the wind and hills and yeah, broken it was, roads. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it was really tough. Just conditions. Um, Honestly, I trained on like much worse hills um, than were in Atlanta, but just like the combination of, you know, them being like, they're just not being any flat section and, and the wind being so bad. It was like really, really hard, um, harder than I would have thought given those hills. But like, like you said, like, I mean, we were all smiling. There was so many people cheering for us the whole way. Like it was impossible not to just be like excited. I mean, yeah. probably in the last 10 days, <laughs> I did not look that happy, <laughs> but it was, it was like, you know, it was hard not to just soak it in and be like, this is pretty freaking awesome. So what's next? Um, yeah. So, um, just going to be honest, what's next is I'm going to, uh, try to grow my family again. Um, I had my first kid, um, tried to get pregnant after the 2016 trial. So I'm going to take the same kind of tact after 2020. So, um, yeah, just going to, try to have another baby. And honestly, the first time around, I was very like secretive about it. I think a lot, a lot of women are for good reason. Um, but this, but that like really drove me crazy. <laughs> and I really appreciate when people are like 
honest and more and more people are being open with, you know, the fears and stresses and, you know, the worries about miscarriaging and stuff. And so I was just like, I'm just going to be honest from the jump. So, um, yeah, that's the plan from here. Cool. What was running postpartum like? Um, it was, it was, uh, a challenge is a, uh, understatement. Um, it's just like your whole body is just like so wrecked from childbirth and like, especially your core. Um, and it's like a very weird sensation. You know, you always hear like, Oh, your core matters for running, but like, you never really think about it. You're like, okay, I'm going to do my core because I need to. But then when you have a baby, you're like, Oh yeah, you need core muscles because if you try to run when they're wrecked, it's like, it just is like the weirdest sensation doesn't feel right at all. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's shift over to uh, the science side of things. So sure. I read somewhere that your explanation of what you do is explaining science to non-scientists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's talk about that. Um, what does that mean? Yeah. So that is what I try to do. Um, so I... Um, have a PhD in neuroscience, which I got um, because I wanted to do research and, and be a scientist. But then somewhere along the way, I decided that I actually really like, um, I really didn't like how if you do research, um, you're just like so focused on like one little tiny niche of science and like you don't get to see that much of it. And I really wanted to teach and like, it's very hard to like only teach. You can you have to do research as well. So then I decided that I wanted to write about it because then I could write about like literally different things every day or every week um, that interested me. And also I still like kind of feel like it's teaching. So my goal is to kind of be able to be like a link between the scientists who use their jargon and talk over everybody's head and try to like translate that to, you know, regular people who are just interested in like what's going on in medicine or like Alzheimer's disease or whatever. Um, I think sometimes, you know, scientists have a hard time sort of dumbing it down to talk to people who don't know that jargon. So my hope is to kind of be the the link there. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I have a coworker who has a PhD as well, and his one of his roles is translational science, is is how he calls mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. um, taking it from from uh, thoughts and theories and um, facts and and helping it um, get disseminated to people mm -hmm. like myself who don't have yeah. PhD. Right. Uh, so what are some of the projects you've worked on that have been particularly meaningful? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't – let me think. Um, I don't know. I guess what's been the most fun is, like, I. so I have a, you know, background, obviously, in neuroscience, but I've been able to write a lot also about, like, physiology and exercise and stuff just because, like, I find that obviously interesting to my, you know – for me personally and have like read a lot about it, even though it's not what my degree is in. So I've had a lot of fun writing um, articles about running or about like exercise and trying to bust some of the myths about exercise or um, weight loss or whatever. So that's been really fun. Um, and then I can't really think off the top of my head. What, what, what are some of those myths that you've, uh, you've worked to bust? Oh, um, let me see. Well, I mean, there's a lot about the, you know, just like exercise leads to like doesn't help you with weight loss, um, which I actually wrote a whole article about. And I went in thinking that that was um, not true because I've lost a lot of weight through exercise. But um, like it's incredibly, incredibly complicated. And the thing I came away with was like it might be true and it totally depends on on your own physiology and who you are as like just your own 
physiology. So um, it's a lot harder to lose weight through exercise than a lot of people assume because some of us are able to do it and some aren't. And so I think that we need to um, be a little kinder to people who are struggling and not just be like, oh, you need to run more. Like it's so much more complicated than that. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Um, so you mentioned that you are, you do a lot of freelance work um, yeah. and you're working, you're doing this from home. Um, I think a very topical uh, question these days is around, you know, how do you balance being at home and being productive and family life and this and that? What are what are some of your um, best practices or or what are you doing that's that's been working? What have you been yeah. doing that's been working? So I used to do freelance full time. Um, and so then for those people who are, you know, full time working right now, I mean, it was really just about like creating an environment like like you would at work. Like I would you know, get up and run. And then I would go to work at, you know, nine o'clock and work till five and like really try to make it like almost as if I had a boss, like looking over my shoulder being like, you have to be here and you have to be like a thing. A lot of writers say is like ass and chair. Like you, you just need to right. sit in the chair and do the work. Right. Um, and so like when I was doing it full time, it was very much like, I really just tried to like pretend like it was a, you know, a real job with a boss hanging over my shoulder and I had to be there at such and such hours. Um, and now I do it, um, part-time as I'm a stay-at-home mom. Um, and so then it's just like fitting it in when I can. Um, my daughter goes to, um, my mother-in-law's one day a week usually. So that's like the day that I really just try to do as much work as I can. And other than that, I'm doing it at nap time or on the weekends or like whenever I can sort of fit it in. Um, and Again, it's just kind of like, especially for writing, it's just like ass and chair. Like you just need to sit yeah. there even when you don't feel like it. And you could obviously like go walk around your house and go make another snack or go, I don't know, do something else. It's like, no, you just need to sit there. And even if it doesn't feel like you're in the mood to work, like let it come to you and just, yeah, try to stay focused and in, in your chair. <laughs> cool. Um, what are some big scary goals that you have running wise in the future? Uh, well, I definitely want to try and qualify for 2024 um, and forever and ever and ever. Amen. Um, basically, <laughs> I want to qualify for as many trials as I can. Yeah. Um, I'm super inspired by the women who've been like to do like four or five. Um, so, you know, first comes three. Let's take it one at a time. Um, but then also, I mean, I really this is like probably a goal that's never going to happen. But I'll just say it because, um, you know, this is, this is how I live. Um, I really like to, uh, break two thirty in the marathon, which is like totally insane. And I'm nine minutes away and I've come really far. So like, that's a pretty bold statement, but I say that like I did at the, when I was talking about my original journey was like, maybe I'll never make two thirty. I probably won't, but like, let me try two thirty-five. Let me try two thirty-seven. Like that's like the kind of tact I'm going to take. Like once I say I want to do two thirty, then two thirty-seven doesn't seem as crazy. Um, and then 235 doesn't seem as crazy. Like, so that's kind of how I take things like put a really big goal out there and then be like, well, that's insane. But well, <laughs> two minutes isn't that crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my crazy goal. <laughs> and what does it take to get there? How do you, how do you set that up? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I've just continued to try to, um, sort of evaluate, you know, what's gone right and wrong in the past season and um, just try to go forward and say like, what could I do better next time? I think this last year I've, if 
felt a little bit burnt out. And so like taking a break to have a baby is also kind of taking a break to like just step away from running for a bit. I think mentally that will help. Um, and then also like, I just feel like I, you know, have had some mental issues I need to like deal with, um, in terms of like, you know, just being in the race and like really believing myself again. And so like, you know, just trying to focus on those. And then, um, you know, after I do get back into running another marathon, see what, you know, I guess after each season, I just try to assess and see what I could have done better and then try to do that the next season. Not like, again, not like totally overwhelming, like trying to change everything, but just like one thing. So what I really like about your story is that it's not, it's not like a, I'm going to pick a goal and that'll be that. It's, it's you're picking a goal and you're working towards it. And it sounds like the, the process of getting better is what, is what you're most interested in. Is that, is that a, a correct assessment? Yeah, I would say for sure. Cause even like, I mean, even originally I didn't necessarily think I was really going to make the trials. Like I wrote in my journal, like, that's crazy. I'm probably never going to make it, but I, I'll get better. And like, that's, I mean, that, that's a quote from that journal. Like I didn't right. think I was going to necessarily get there, but I did just want to get better. And it's still true today. So I've done, I just released my 58th episode on this podcast and it's mostly professional or elite athletes or professional or high performing people in their field. Mm -hmm. And the consistency throughout has been process oriented, not goal oriented. And I think mm -hmm. it's fascinating that, um, elites have this perspective, but, and, and many of them, it's their job to perform and it's their job mm -hmm. to win races and represent brands and things like that. But they're still not focused on, I want to win. They're focused on, I want to get better. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that amateurs and I'll put myself in this bucket, like I was focused on breaking three for four years mm -hmm. and that was the goal. And mm -hmm. it wasn't enjoy it. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, um, anything else. It was like, I want to, well, it was actually to BQ, which was 305 and then it became mm -hmm. three. And now it's mm -hmm. like, I probably would need to run a 230 with you to, <laughs> to <laughs> get these days. Um, <laughs> and I, I just want to like, what, what do you think the disconnect there is between elites and amateurs where you would think that, that amateurs are more focused on the fun and elites are more focused on the outcome, but it's, it's flip-flop. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe, I really don't know, but I think maybe like in terms of the professional field, like there's so much pressure to like have to win or to make the Olympic team or to win a gold or whatever. And like very few professionals are actually going to do that. You know, three people yeah. make the Olympic team every four years. And so I think that there has to be some sort of like, there has to be some sort of like release of the pressure. Like, right. yes, I want to win. I want a gold medal at the Olympics, but like, maybe that won't happen. And let me just appreciate the fact that I love what I'm doing anyway. Right. Um, and so I think maybe it's just like some sort of mental way to just like release that and step back and realize like, disassociate from this the is, outcome. this is awesome anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Distance yourself from the outcome so that you can enjoy it because otherwise it would be overwhelming. Um, yeah. and I think, you know, maybe some amateurs do sort of overwhelm themselves with their goals and then it's like not fun anymore. And then what, you know, why are we doing it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't achieve my goal until I disconnected from the the need to achieve it. Mm -hmm. uh, I went into my marathon last spring, 
standing on the start line. It was raining, and I was like, I had a shit-eating grin on my face. I was like, let, let me go. Like, mm-hmm. this is it. Um, and I didn't care if I ran 259, 301, mm-hmm. 320, 255, whatever it was. Um, yeah. I had won because I was on the start line. And then when the race started, I just couldn't stop. And it just felt so good. And mm-hmm. I think that it's really hard to get to that place. Mm-hmm. And it takes a coach. It takes a like a village to, to mm-hmm. mentally get to that place. But once you're there, I think the, the sky's the limit for sure. Yeah. Um, I would say also on that, like, I mean, I definitely have um, – I'm definitely not perfect at this either. Like I definitely have had times where I've been like too tied to a time because I have been like, I mean, my goals are, like you said, like times. Right. And so, I mean, I have it's definitely progress versus. Yeah. Time. yeah. Um, so sometimes it does like, I mean, I, you know, I have beaten myself up over Like I tried to break 250 for a really long time before I actually did. Yeah. Um, and like, I was kind of tied to that as like my, white whale or whatever like I couldn't break it and so that was frustrating um and I definitely have I just kept at it I mean it's (laughs) like the answer no one wants to hear like you just keep at it I um I yeah I just kept at it and I kept believing that even though I hadn't run 250 I had been training like my training showed that I was faster than 250 for a while and so like I kept saying like my PR was 253 and then I ran and then I was like, Oh yeah, I can break 250. And then I ran a 252 and I was like, but now I'm in 248 shape. And then I ran a 258 and I was like, but wait a minute, now I'm in 246 shape. Like I just knew that I was actually in better shape than I was performing on the day. And so I kept just thinking like, um, you know, the next season, like, okay, I'm starting out and I'm really in a two, 248 runner, even though I don't have that time to show for it. And, um, just kept believing that. And then, the time, the first time I broke 250, I ran 242 because it like had been such a long time coming. Um, and because I just continued to believe it's really hard to do. I mean, we all have our dark days when we think actually, uh, you know, I don't think I could do this, but I had to just kind of continue to believe that like the training I was putting in and the workouts I was doing equated to faster than, than I had run on the day because, you know, marathons are cruel and, that's just how yeah. it works out sometimes. <laughs> my, my coach talks about it as the trial of miles. Like, like mm-hmm. you said, the only way to get better is to just keep doing it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Des and her quote, keep showing yeah. up. I mean, that's, sure. that's the secret. The secret yeah. is there is no secret. You have to keep doing it. Uh, it yeah. took me four marathons over like a four-year period to, to do it. I, I ran 335 as my first, then 327, then 320, then 401, mm-hmm. and then 259. And so I went, I took 20 minutes in between, uh, the 320 and the 259, yeah. Yeah. but that was a two year hiatus. Right. And so it was the same thing. It's like when I ran the 401, I was in 305 shape. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because the, the two times that I like had like my biggest besides the first marathon, um, or I should say the first to the second marathon, the two times I had like my biggest breakthroughs, like to run that 242, I was a 10 minute PR. And before that, the first time I broke three hours, um, that was a 15 minute PR. The the marathons prior to that, both occasions were like my worst to date. Like I ran, like you said, like, you know, your 401, like it was like you had the absolute worst day. And then the next race, it was like the absolute best. Cause you're sort of like angry that like that didn't go your way and you know, you're better than that. And it gives you like a little extra something. (laughs) 
Yeah. No, the 401 was, was I think, the most impactful race I've, I had run to that point. Um, it was Boston 2017, and I did everything wrong leading up to it. Um, I, you know, I came home the three days prior with, with 30,000 steps and I started the race feeling like I had done three long runs. You know, I fell victim to everything that Boston weekend has to offer and, you know, seeing all the people and doing all the things. And then I get to mile seven and I'm like, I'm fucked. (laughs) Like like my day is done here and staring down the road with 19 miles to go, like realizing that you're you're in for, you know, some some shit like that's character building and and it's days like that that um it, it took me probably 3 months to recover from that mm-hmm. and i wouldn't trade that for i, I took 3 weeks off um mm-hmm. of running and i wouldn't trade that experience for for anything my favorite memory of that race was i have a friend who's who's um solidly a 4 hour marathoner and he he finished in 407 and I finished in 401. And so I saw him like minutes mm-hmm. after finishing. <laughs> and he was like, holy shit, man. If I knew you were five, six minutes up the road, I would have run my ass off to beat you. <laughs> and it was just a, a really funny. I mean, I felt awful in, in the yeah. moment. But um, it's days like that where like you find out what you're made of. And like mm-hmm. you said, um, you, leap, you leap forward from, right. from something like that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned you're part of Wazelle. Um, I love what they're doing on the community side of things. And um, <laughs> funny story about them and this podcast, we were talking about podcast sponsorship. And uh, this was in February. And I was talking with Rebecca about it. And she was like, mm, sorry, we couldn't, we can't do it. We spent the whole budget on the party. <laughs> <laughs> I went to that party and I can confirm that they spent the whole, yeah. <laughs> the whole budget. Was a fun party. Party. <laughs> um, but the energy in the room when Lizzo came on and good as hell, yeah. like yeah. I had never seen energy like that anywhere before. So let's talk about your experience with, with them. Um, yeah. I mean, I just, lo- I just love them so much. I um, reached out to them in 2018 to be part of their team. I was, um, in 2016, I was, um, part of a DC based team. Um, and I was one of the only, uh, there was one other woman who qualified for the 2016 trials, um, from my team back then, but like she just joined and we didn't really know each other. So I was kind of there alone. And I remember being at the start line of 2016 trials and seeing like, I don't know exactly how many of the people they had, but like 20 was girls. And they were just like all friends and like, you know, high-fiving and like having a great time. And I was like, ah, I'll be on that team. <laughs> and then, um, I mean, I loved my DC team, um, to death and some of them are still my best friends, but I moved from DC anyway. So then I was like, well, let me see if I can reach out to Wazel. And, um, so I was on their Volet team, which is just like the team that's available to anybody. Um, you know, no pace or whatever. Um, you can just sign up to join and plug for that. You can sign up to join starting in April. If anyone's interested, they can also just reach out to me if they have questions about that. But, um, Yes, I was on that team for a while and like met a bunch of people in Richmond that are on that team. It's a great way to meet like local runners. Um, And I just moved to Richmond, uh, Virginia, which is where I live now. So that was great. And then I joined the Hope Volet about a year, a little over a year ago. And that's just been really fun um, to be part of that team and um, really be part of the Volet team as well. You go to different cities to run races and there's people there that, you know, you could stay with that, you know, that there's a party after every race. Um, And it's just like really fun. And so many people like, it's just so 
much support that you feel wherever you go, whatever race you're running, however fast you're going or not fast, like everybody's just on your side and it's just so much fun. Um, and we had like, they do the big bird camp in the summertime. It was just like a whole weekend of just like women's empowerment and you come away from it feeling like, you know, we're awesome and we're going to change the world. And like, that's really what was like just feels like all the time. And so it's been really awesome. And the trials weekend being part of that team and that party and cowbell corner, which is their section of the course, which was just like insane. Like, I mean, you couldn't even like make out a voice. Like it was just like loud, like crazy cheers. So it's just like so fun to be part of that team and, and really be, um, with a company that really supports women, um, through all walks of life and really just like supports each other, no matter what we're going through. It's just like really awesome. And I can't say enough good things about them. And that party was so fun. I mean, I haven't like, I had run a marathon that day. I haven't stayed out that late since my daughter was born. I don't think like, I mean, and it was just so fun. And I was like dancing, even though my legs were, you know, on fire. And it's just like a testament to how fun it was. Yeah. And they had some very healthy pours with their wines. So it was, yeah. <laughs> it was fun. Um, yes. I, I walked in, I got in the elevator and I looked at the guy, there were like four guys that got in the elevator at the time. And I was like, I think I recognize this guy. And it was Abdi. And he had just like podiumed. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I did not realize that he was there until afterwards. <laughs> There's a photo of me on stage and he's like five people away from me. And I'm like, Abdi was there? Like, noticed that yeah I was just like there was so much going on but yeah that was crazy he was there (laughs) yeah it was just like that was the place to be I mean there was it was was, that was wild um well awesome so where where can we find you if we want to continue to follow your your adventures and your journey towards uh (laughs) 229.59 yeah now people are gonna be like oh this girl's crazy but I will (laughs) have you know I did make it all the way to the trials when people would have thought that was crazy um (laughs) So on Instagram, that's where I usually post the most stuff is um, at Runner Teal. I'm also Twitter at Runner Teal. Um, And I still have a blog called Miles to the Trials, um, which nowadays is just basically me writing like race reports about how my races went. So you can check that out as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for doing this today. And we'll see you out there. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Yep. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next week on For the Long Run. And in the meantime, happy trails. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too.